Welcome to the BCP and Me, the podcast that explores the Book of Common Prayer as a manual for living out our lives. My name is Father Tyler Richards, and I am joined here by Father Joshua Nelson as we continue our exploration through the Book of Common Prayer. Good afternoon, Father Joshua. Good afternoon, Father Tyler. I I feel like we should be playing like like eye of the tiger or something behind this episode as as we as we step over this next threshold um no well well for our paying listeners we'll uh we'll add our workout montage it's our preparation for this episode You know, lifting lifting BCPs in each in one hand and hymnal in the other, or or maybe we will rock you. I, I don't know. We we got to come up with something here. Uh, you know, I'm going to leave it to you to create a BCP and me playlist for all of our followers to tap into on Spotify. Um, there's some bonus content for for everybody who listens to us on Spotify. Look for the BCP and me a playlist. Um, and, and again, Father Tyler is, is ringing me into something that we haven't discussed prior. So, yeah, be on the lookout for that at some point in the next year or two. <laughs> year or two. Uh, as, as I'm getting ready to leave the state and then later this month to leave the country, it might be a minute on that one. So, yeah. But in any case, uh, speaking of leaving the country, um, here we go into... The Holy Eucharist right too. And I feel like I feel like this this episode is a culmination. I mean, uh, and it's kind of silly because there's still so much left of the Book of Common Prayer. And yet the Holy Eucharist is the central act of worship within the Episcopal Church. Uh, and so it is, I, I I guess it's it's making it to another point along the trail i don't know uh but it it feels that way to me as a culmination but uh as we begin our journey through we are on page 354 in the book of common prayer as usual when we come across a new rite or a new liturgy that has one of these pages we like to stop and take stock of the page called concerning the service or in this case concerning the celebration. Father Joshua, would you like to talk about the use of the word celebration here? Well, for one, it is a celebration. Uh, every Eucharist, there's our there's our, our song, our playlist. Cele- uh, we can't do much more of that because we don't have the rights. But every celebration of the Eucharist is a remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's like a little Easter Sunday, all kind of packed into one. And so we we come to celebrate. We come to lift up our hearts. We come to rejoice. We come to worship. We Basically, we come to have a party within the four walls of our church, and we forget that church is supposed to be a celebration. Um, Father Joshua and I, both in our times, have witnessed something that we like to call a commiseration of the Holy Eucharist, Uh, and we forget that the spirit of the Eucharist is supposed to be uh, joyous and and expressive, and so uh, it's important to point out that this is a celebration in the truest sense of the word. But in concerning the celebration, our first directive that is not a rubric, technically, Uh, Well, it is a rubric, but a different kind of rubric. Um, It is the bishop's prerogative when present to be the principal celebrant at the Lord's table and to preach the gospel. And of course, this all goes back to the earliest days of the church when the churches were still being run primarily by bishops. And it is through the creation of the presbyterate, the creation of the priesthood, that priests come into the picture and then begin to act as the bishop's representative to local congregations. But whenever the bishop is president, is present, well, he's president, but press present, excuse me, it's his choice to be the principal celebrant at the Lord's table. And this, uh, just a bit of history in the Episcopal Church, 
This is part of why we fought so hard to get our own bishops, um, because in the uh, 17th and 18th century, the Anglicans, the Church of England congregations within the colonies of North America were under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of London, because that makes a lot of sense. Um, and in most of these cases, your bishop was supposed to show up regularly to do things like confirmations and preside over the celebration of the Eucharist. But the Bishop of London never set foot in North America. Um, so that was part of the, the gripe and the grievance that caused the um, birth of the Episcopal Church in the United States. Well, and the other thing was, is that if you wanted to have a ordination of a new clergy person, they would have to come from England. One, because there's no seminaries in the colonies. Um, but two, in order for them to be ordained, they have to be in the presence of a bishop. Um, and it, before the foundation of the United States of America, the one being ordained had to swear fealty to the crown and all these other things, but all of it had to be done in the presence of a bishop. And so England, for the early days of the American church, before we were America, still holds major sway over the colonies because you have to have bishops to do very important things inside of the church. At all celebrations of the liturgy, it is fitting that the principal celebrant, whether bishop or priest, be assisted by other priests and by deacons and by laypersons. We're looking at all of the various orders of ministry, not just bishop, priest, and deacon, but also the lay people. Harkening back to what we talked about earlier with um, Vatican II, about the meaning participation of all orders within the liturgy of the church. Uh, it is appropriate that the other priests present, present stand with the celebrant at the altar and join in the consecration of the gifts, in breaking of the bread, and in distributing communion. And, and this, this kind of goes back to also the, um, there are the, the three ordained orders of uh, being the episcopate, the presbyterate priests, and the diaconate deacons. <clears throat> but everyone who is a member of the episcopate, all bishops, are also members of the presbyterate college. They are, also, they are first and foremost priests. Um, so that's part of why all are included uh, within the, um, at, at the table, at the altar. A deacon should read the gospel and may lead the prayers of the people. Deacon should also serve at the Lord's table, preparing and placing on it the offerings of bread and wine and assisting in the ministration of the sacrament to the people. In the absence of a deacon, these duties may be performed by an assisting priest. So, Father Tyler, the bread and the wine are, are offerings of the people? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we have these elements that come forward during the offertory, which is a part of the service that we'll talk about. Um, and what this, what this bread and this wine come to represent, outside of being transformed into the body and blood of Christ, um, they represent our human labor and our human toil taken from the gifts of the earth that are given to us by God and then offered back to God in this celebration of and sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And so we have taken the fruits of the earth that God has given us. We have done something to them. We've monkeyed around with them and put things in like yeast to make big puffy loaves of bread. And we've taken things like yeast and thrown it into a vat of grapes and come up with delicious glasses of wine. Although not all communion wine is created equal, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> another podcast. That's another podcast. <laughs> um, and then you have representatives of the people, typically the ushers bringing forward the gifts that we are offering back to God as an act of thanksgiving for everything that God has offered to us. And again, this harkens back to our history and this idea that we are all one community. Um, the bread and the wine have become um, kind of sterilized nowadays, right? We 
order from church supply and the office, make sure that we have the wafers in the sacristy. And, you know, that you got to make sure that we have a, a good bottle of, I'll just say wine, we won't get into that argument yet, uh, in the sacristy. And the people don't really have any involvement in it. But back in the day, it was, you know, and we did this at seminary where somebody would, you would join this club and, and somebody would be on the rota to bake the bread for communion. And uh, so it was coming from somebody's home. It was coming from out in the community, the bread and the wine. And that's why it is brought forward as an offering of the people to be placed on the altar and used within this celebration. And it, it's all full circle. It all comes back in the end. And so the deacon, who is the one that in the great history of the church, you find this in the book of Acts, were literally constituted to wait on the orphans and the widows and the marginalized members of society that the apostles truly and earnestly could not get to, that they had so much going on that they couldn't, that the needs of these marginalized communities were falling off of the table. They were literally, they couldn't keep up with these people. Deacons were created to help come alongside and help to assist the apostles in making sure that these people were served. And so what deacons become is this bridge mm -hmm. um, that simultaneously take the church out into the world, but also bring the world back into the church. And so if we think about the history of deacons, what they were constituted for and what they've sort of come to represent, it makes sense that the deacons are the ones they're putting the offerings of the people, bringing the gifts out from the people and putting them onto the table for the, for the bishop and the other priests to ask God to consecrate and to set apart, um, being that bridge, being the one that prepares that for us to then offer it up to Almighty God. And, 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 and look, ahead, forward, look forward in the future to our special episodes on ordination and of these different orders. Um, we'll dig a lot deeper into that. What exactly is a deacon and what that means? Well, and I might even have a special guest star on the ordination of a deacon to come and talk to us about what her ministry as a deacon has been like. Uh, lay persons appointed by the celebrant should normally be assigned the reading of the lessons which precede the gospel and may lead the prayers of the people. So you have the people actually reading from the word of God. Um, the, the Old Testament, the epistle often are the selections that are available to be read by the lay people. Of course, the ordained read the gospel to the people and also prayers of the people. Um, this is another place where it's, it's good to have deacons who, who are there crafting prayers of the people or helping us to keep up with what we're praying for as congregations. But also remembering that the prayers that are being offered are also prayers of the laity as well. Um, and so sometimes it's helpful to have lay people come and do the prayers of the people as a representative of the lay people coming in and again participating fully in the life of the Eucharist. For example, I neither of my parishes has a deacon, um, but in one parish, the prayers of the people are led from the dais, uh, from the, the lectern, and in another, just kind of out of maneuverability, accessibility, uh, they are read from the pews, from the congregation. And I think there's something really special about that, that these are the prayers of this congregation being raised up kind of in this, I, you know, I kind of imagine if we had incense, the incense blowing from the, the pews up to the altar and up to the heavenly spaces, um, raising our prayers high, uh, that it's not something like an, just this idea that it's just an announcement being made. No, this is the prayers of this particular body being raised up to God. Yeah, it's it's not a listing of the of the gossip and the rumors that are floating around in the parish. And Lord, please be with Bessie who is down with bunions and bless her heart. She can't get around good no more. And that daughter of hers ain't seen a day of work in her entire life. So Lord, just be with them. 
Or to, uh, to, quote, uh, the, to quote the vicar of Debbie, Lord, we, we pray for the queen who is having trouble with her biles again and for Mrs. Peterson and all her family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Morning or evening prayer may be used in place of all that precedes the peace and the offertory, provided that a lesson from the gospel is always included and that the intercessions conform to the directions given for the prayers of the people. Father Joshua, what are they talking about there? Uh, well, they're taking us back to the idea that morning prayer was the principal service of Sunday morning and not the Eucharist. Uh, so we have this introductory rite uh, that we will get to in a moment, um, but it also allows us to use what that familiar um, uh, rite, this the familiar order of morning prayer, if we're in the morning or evening prayer, if it's a Vesper service, uh, that is then followed, uh, can be followed by the Eucharist, uh, if a priest is present, or simply ending um, after the prayers of the people and the peace, but always including the gospel for that day, and not just uh, because we have multiple um, lections. We have a lectionary cycle for the daily office, as well as a lectionary cycle for the Eucharist. So if this were done on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening, we would use the lectionary cycle, the RCL, for the Eucharist, um, which kind of keeps the entire body of Christ, uh, all Episcopal churches, hearing the same words on the same day. And for those that are still hungry for more rubrics and more directions for other things that need to happen during the service and ways things are typically done during the service and all of the bits and the bobs and everything that you need to celebrate a Holy Eucharist, you may turn your attention to page 406, 407, and page 408 on into page 409. Um, but as is the case with 409, we will leave that to clean up on another day. But there are plenty of other directions there, uh, things that should be observed in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist that, uh, that are there for you to take a look at and for you to consider if you feel so called uh, to do so. Um, and, and before uh, we get the questions, I'm sure, because this is something that came up in the midst of the pandemic and because of the way it reads, the Holy Eucharist does not need a consecrated wooden table, a church with four walls and pews and all that in order to be valid. Correct. Both Father Tyler and I have celebrated the Eucharist on mountaintops using stones. Uh, you know, a lot of this is from our trip to Israel and Palestine, which one could argue is all a great sanctuary, but a table, a community, wine and bread, and the prayers. And uh, that's, that's a valid Eucharist. It's a valid celebration of the, the sacrifice and the sacrament and the thanksgiving to God. Two weeks ago, I said the Eucharist at uh, Waypost Camps in Hatley, Wisconsin, on a folding table next to a campfire out near a lake with a campfire blazing in the back. Um, and, and how many times has a rolling hospital bed table become a holy altar? Yeah. So, um, just, just to add those two cents. Just to add those two cents. So having rightly observed uh, some of the rubrics uh, as, as to things that are of chief concern as we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, we are, we are ready to begin to look at the actual service itself. Um, and so as and we turn... If you can't hear the trepidation in Father Tyler's voice, we have been so worried about this because it's such a big thing, but we are, we are praying now and, and offering this to the Holy Spirit to, to lead and guide us. The boys were so worried about this, but now we're glad. <laughs> um, and that is a reference to Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which 
is not in this movie uh, in any case. Um, so we begin our service with the first part of celebration of the Holy Eucharist with the word of God. One of the things that we have to remember in, in looking at the Holy Eucharist is that while there are many different moving parts, the service itself is divided up into two distinct sections. There is the word of God, and then there is the liturgy of the table. It is also called the anaphora and the pro-anaphora. Um, there are different moving pieces that are present inside of the services, entrance rites and Eucharistic prayers and all of the above. But the primary division is, is the, is the, excuse me, my brain has gone out the window, <laughs> is the proclamation of the word of God, the people having a chance to respond to the word of God, and then the celebration and administration of the Holy Eucharist. And uh, it begins as so many begin. We have a rubric for a hymn, a psalm, or an anthem may be sung. And then the people standing, the celebrant says uh, one of these, oh, for some reason, my brain has just gone out the window and I can't remember the word. <laughs> salutations. Well, the salutations. Yes, that's right. Wilbur and Charlotte and all that, uh, which if you want to know a little bit more about this, this is the blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the people answer, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Uh, we discussed this at more length in the previous episode uh, of this podcast. And one of the chief features here at the beginning of the word of God is a particularly um, important prayer that um, having it out here in this part of the service is actually an innovation of the 79 book. Um, this particular prayer is called the Collect for Purity, and it was something that used to be said privately by the priest before the Mass actually began. And so uh, in it, the celebrant may say, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And, and even though this has been brought out away from the sacristy by the, the prayer uh, BCP 79, I have been in places where I think, unfortunately, the congregation joins in on this prayer, but the rubrics clearly say that the celebrant may say, this is something said on behalf of the people, right? Correct. Um, it, it's one of those things that we remember that the role of the priest is to stand in the presence of the, in the presence of God with our people on our hearts. And so this is us fulfilling that particular role of standing in the midst of the people, offering prayers to God on behalf of the people, and acknowledging very important things. First of all, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. There ain't no getting away from God. God sees all, God knows all, and God sees us and looks on us with mercy and with love and with grace and calls us to be more than we are. And then we have the audacity to ask God to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts, to take care of the icky bits that live within the cockles of our hearts by the inspiration, by the literal breathing in of the Holy Spirit, asking God to send down the Holy Spirit upon us that those places in our lives that are all mucked up might be set right. This so, sounds like an act of penitence. Doesn't it just? <laughs> um, I'd also, knowing your background, Father Tyler, give us a little bit more of a breakdown of that word inspiration, inspire, since you kind of alluded to it there. I think that's really important. Well, in inspiration uh, literally means the act of taking in the spirit. And if you take if you take the word spirit and you move it backwards into the Greek, which we're going to do, 
Um, you have this word pneuma, and it's also another word that we have in English that refers to the lungs and everything that relates to a part of our respiratory system. And so the inspiration, the inspiration almost is that bringing in that, that how to say this is to ask God to send down that spirit upon us so that it's we bre- take. It's a breathing in of the breath of God. Correct. The, the Ruach, the Numa. Yes. Um, the the Numa in Greek, the Ruach in uh, Hebrew, that Ruach, that spirit, that breath, that wind of God that hovered over the waters of the deep in creation. And we get all the way back in Genesis. Um, so there's a lot kind of held in that. One is oh, almost yeah. holding one is almost holding their breath and waiting to exhale. But yes, correct. Um, he was wondering if I was going to make the joke and now I have made it. Um, but it it is it is asking God to send that spirit into us. Here we are at the very beginning of the service. We haven't even brought bread and wine forward, and we're already asking the Holy Spirit to do something for us Mm -hmm. and the holy spirit is always moving around uh causing trouble i would have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for jesus and that pesky holy spirit um but the holy spirit is always there moving and 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 we're getting caught up in in that living life of the trinity but here even at the beginning of our of our worship asking for the holy spirit to come to us so that we might see straight to do the work that is given us to do at this time, at this place, um, so that we can perfectly love God and worthily magnify God's holy name. And we do all of these things through Jesus Christ. We are able to call upon God and we're able to ask these things of God because of everything that Jesus has already done for us. All of our prayers are mediated through Jesus. Even the even the prayers that we our our humble household prayers are all mediated through Jesus, who is there interceding on our behalf before God the Father. And we have this prayer that is offered to God through the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Yay, Trinitarian theology. <laughs> So now that we've had our little uh, Aquinas moment here, (laughs) the following page then continues and it brings the people back in. So we've we've done this prayer, this calling for purity as the priest, as the one offering sacrifice on behalf of the people. And now the people are brought back in uh, when appointed the following hymn or some other song of praise is sung or said all standing. And so here, of course, we have the great hymn of praise of the Church of the Gloria that has been a part of our tradition since time immemorial. Uh, well, really, all three of these options <laughs> have been part of our tradition since right. time immemorial. So we have, we have here the first option that is presented is the Gloria. The second option that is presented is oftentimes simply called the Kyrie or the Lord have mercy. The third option that is presented is called the Trisagion. The Trisagion, of course, meaning the the thrice holy being holy three times. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, agio, agio, agion means holy. And tri, of course, is three. And, of course, you have your Greek words. Yeah, Trisagion is is very much a, a Greek word. Well, it's almost like Greek and Latin collided together, and we have that great word. Um, and so, uh, so we have these three uh, anthems, hymns, song of praise. Sometimes during Easter season, you will have a piece put in here called the Pascha Nostrum, um, that of course comes to us from the writings of Saint Paul. Alleluia, Alleluia. Um, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and so on and so forth. 
the the rubric here allows us to insert things into this space that are intended to be corporate songs of praise. And yeah. so the prayer book, the prayer book gives us a whole host of options for those. But the important thing being we begin with praise. Correct. And then uh, having, having observed the, the, the correct praises, we come to the collect of the day. And goodness knows we have talked about how collects collect up the prayers of the people. And we worked our way through the entire, well, not the entire, but we looked at a great number of the collects that are presented for various days throughout the church here in previous episodes, or in a previous episode, I should say. Um, and, uh, and then we come having prayed the collect of the day and having collected all of the, the prayers of the people, having allowed for a period of appropriate silence to take place so that the people can offer up their own prayers privately in their pews. The priest comes and offers the collect and then our service continues with the lessons. So after the collect, we finally get to sit down. Finally. <laughs> and and this is why this is, you know it is the word of God, this portion of the Eucharistic um, service. Yeah, um, and if if you're beginning to listen to this and say, well, Father Joshua, Father Tyler, this is all beginning to sound really familiar, like this almost seems like the pattern that morning prayer follows, well, um, that could have a very good reason. Ding, 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 ding. You are a winner on the BCP and me. The BCP and me. We don't know what you've won, but you've won something. Uh, um, it is because this, this part of the service um, is kind of an office. So if you're, if you're starting to pick up on that feeling of it being like one of the offices of morning prayer, that's because it's kind of the office of morning prayer. Um, yeah. And so it should feel familiar to you. Those of you who are familiar with the daily office and the ongoing practice of that. And so the rest of this becomes somewhat familiar to you as well as we come to the lessons. But it's also why this portion is sometimes called anti-communion or before communion um, and is used within the church. I you know in the practical side of using it is uh the priest was on his way to church and all of a sudden somebody died or all of a sudden the priest got sick and last minute changes have to be made. So the Sunday morning service becomes a service of anti-communion, which means we do everything in the Eucharistic section up to uh, the peace and after the prayers and the peace and uh, end with the Lord's prayer then, and don't celebrate or don't distribute communion. Um, so again, you, you have your, you have your first reading and after the reading, you get a Psalm. And then after the Psalm, you get a second reading. And then often after that second reading, you have what we call the sequence hymn or the gradual hymn a song of praise following that. And then you come to a reading of the, wait for it, the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Again, following that same familiar pattern of the daily office. It strikes me as, as profoundly um, comforting that those who are doing the daily office and those that are following some kind of wrote system of prayer using the Book of Common Prayer come into the celebration of the Holy Eucharist feeling quite at home mm -hmm. because privately in our own homes outside of church on Sunday morning, we've been continuing the work, the liturgy, liturgia literally meaning the work of the people, we've been continuing the liturgy in our own lives. And so when we come into the Eucharist, it feels like stepping into a comfortable pair of shoes. It's, it's a continuum. Yeah, it's just a continuation of the worship we do in our daily lives. Correct. Um, and so, um, having come to the gospel, um, the deacon comes down into the midst of the people and the gospel is proclaimed. Uh, the sermon is then delivered 
hopefully with great skill and with great panache and with a way that brings glory to God and brings the people of God to tears and doesn't leave them balancing their checkbooks or weeping and gnashing their teeth. And is hopefully full of brevity. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, dear friends, that it is a thin line between a sermon and a hostage situation. And we should observe that line judiciously. I I was often told if you are still preaching after 20 minutes, all you've done is repeat yourself. Correct. So tell the people what you're going to tell them, tell them that, and then tell them what you told them. (laughs) From the redundancy department of redundancy at seminary. Correct. Uh, Following the sermon, though, we have a nice little... uh, piece of text here that we call the Nicene Creed. Now, it's interesting that the Nicene Creed follows the sermon, but I'm going to leave this particular nugget for Father Joshua. Well, I'm, I'm going to defer to the rubric. Uh, on Sundays and other major feasts, there follows all standing the Nicene Creed, which would suggest that the Eucharist may be celebrated really every day, not just Sunday, but it is the principal service of Sunday. Uh And uh, that in those cases, which we often refer to as a simple Eucharist, uh, the sermon is immediately followed by the prayers of the people. So the Nicene Creed being here, one, points us back to our baptism, and two, brings us together in this statement of our faith. This is a communal act. This is the body of Christ, the community of faith, standing together and saying, this is what we believe. So it is a proclamation of the people, but it is also a reminder to the people. Invoking the blessed name of Marian Hatchet, Uh, Marion writes that in the West, the Third Council of Toledo in Spain, circa 589, uh, first introduced the creed to remind the Arian converts continually of the true faith. Um, This is also the council that decided to insert the filioque in the creed. uh, And over the next few centuries, use of the creed spread northward. So the creed is also here. Uh, sometimes as a bit of a corrective. If the sermon goes off the rails, if the sermon doesn't exactly do everything that the sermon is intended to do, the Nicene Creed is here to sort of say, well, we believe in one God, the Father, the Son, the whole, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen, as a way to sort of point us back to what the true statement of our faith is. And all because of this, Because your sermon, although we pray that it is led and being guided by the Holy Spirit, is being proclaimed by mere mortals and human beings. And sometimes we get in our own way. Correct. And sometimes we as the listener of a sermon get in our own way. Correct. And therefore, the Nicene Creed refocuses us. Comes along and says, well, don't forget that this is what we believe. And of course, the Nicene Creed is the creed that was created by the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325. That was, of course, uh, convened by the, uh, the uh, not the Emperor Charlemagne, the uh, Emperor Constantine. Uh, has one of the first is a really important early council of the church to help decide what the beliefs, the practices, the norms of the Catholic church, meaning the universal church would be. Um, the, Nicaea, uh, the council of Nicaea is also that great council of the church where Santa Claus punched a heretic, um, but that's neither here nor there. Hey, Nicholas, in, in, in fighting the heresy of Arianism, which was <laughs> um, this idea that uh, the Holy, that Jesus was not both um, divine and human, and uh, this kind of pushback against Trinitarian uh, theology, 
And the majority of the bishops then uh, came together and said, no, this is how it really is. And this is how the Holy Spirit has guided us. Um, so therefore, this is what we believe. And uh, and so a number of other things were settled at the Council of Nicaea, but uh, this creed, this we believe, uh, became one of the early creeds and the early statements of faith as the early church is getting itself online and is really creating a system of doctrines and beliefs and a canon of scripture and getting 300 years of Christianity sorted out and stated. A, a Christianity that had spread so widely mm -hmm. in, you know, a time before the internet or Twitter, so that um, worship is being influenced by locality and, and uh, things in North Africa are different than things are happening up in Europe than things are happening over in Asia and in Asia Minor. And so these councils of the church are to bring uh, the entire church back together and say, okay, let, let's get on the same page. Correct. Hold up, y'all. Wait a minute. Let's remember what we're doing here. So... Having heard the word of God, having responded to the word of God with the sermon and the Nicene Creed, we then come to the section of the prayer of the of the liturgy of the word called the prayers of the people. And we are quickly going to go through and illuminate all six versions of the prayers of the people for you so that you will know without variance what they all mean. No, actually, we're not going to do that at this point in the podcast. But uh, it is here that we will simply hold up the pattern that has been established for prayers of the people, that prayer is offered with intercession for the universal church, its members, and its mission. Please remember that the word Catholic, little c Catholic, means universal. The nation and all in authority. All books of common prayer in the Anglican tradition have prayers for their home country, those that are in power. Uh, in Great Britain, in the United Kingdom, they still pray for the queen. We stopped praying for the sovereign when we became the United States of America. Um, the welfare but we pray, of the But we pray for the president, for the Congress, for the members of the Supreme Court, so on and so forth. Mayors, governors. Um, all the way down the line. The welfare of the world, everything that is going on in this in this world that we find ourselves living in. Um, the, the concerns of the local community, uh, those in particular who have asked for our intercession, uh, those who are going through tough times, those who are sick, um, those, you know, anticipating surgery, different things like that. Um, this continues with those who suffer and those who are in any kind of trouble. Let us just say that this is not gossip time. <laughs> this is, these are real concerns. These are members of our family and we are praying for them. And um, then go ahead. It, well, and then it, 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 it bears, it, it bears stating here that after we've offered the prayers for those who have departed, I sort of jumped the gun a little bit. Um, we also pray for those who have died um, and commemorations of a saint when appropriate. Um, it, it's important to state here that even though there are six forms of prayers of the people in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, the framers of the prayer book never intended for us to just use those six forms of common pr of prayers of the people. Those forms were given as a way that we could structure our own prayers. And so they've kind of become the default since 1979, that those prayers were sort of examples of the shape that prayers of the people could take. Um, and, and really, and really that's the fault of lazy liturgists. Correct. Um, so, uh, so in your own home context, you know, you might push for your own parish to come up with prayers of the people that conform to something found in one of those six forms beginning on page 383 
Um, but those six forms that we were originally given for prayers of the people were never meant to become the be all end all for prayers of the people. You can use them, but they are examples. Um, but write your own, you know, form a committee within your congregation whose role, if I mean, if there is no deacon who's or with the deacon to formulate these prayers of the people. And what we have on page 359 is what it must include. It must include the universal church, its members and its mission, so on and so forth. The, those who suffer are in trouble, those who have departed. And as long as you include those, it can be something that is very personal and connected to your particular community. Moving from prayers of the people, we then progress straight into the confession of sin as sort of the last kind of step in responding to the word of God that we've heard is what did we hear in the gospel? What did we hear in the readings? What did we hear in the sermon that affected the way that we viewed our own behavior? And now we're given the chance to offer that up to God. Um, and go ahead, Father Joshua. I, I will say that within the rubrics on 359, it does say on occasion, the confession may be omitted. When would that be what would that look like in particular commonly the the confession is omitted on particularly high holy days um uh i've i've often seen it omitted during the celebration of the octave of easter as as a way to uh point us towards the forgiveness of god and the grace of god that has been bestowed upon everyone um can you think Are of other with even even within the full 50 days of Easter, or if you look back at the previous episode where we discussed the penitential order, when the penitential order is used and there is a confession at the beginning of the service, prior to the lessons and everything, mm -hmm. or when the great litany is used in connection with a celebration of the Holy Eucharist, where we have already made our confession within this service. Mm -hmm then it is also admitted at this point. And you can also see that here that sentences from the penitential order can be said here before the confession of sin. Again, pulling on that great tradition of the comfortable words being issued before a general confession is a way to bring comfort to the people that are about to confess their sins against God and their neighbor. And goodness knows we have we have talked about the confession in all its various forms multiple times throughout the podcast. And so uh, we don't need to talk about the confession and the absolution only to point out the fact that they are here, here present before the peace, which isn't just a great time to make announcements, but is actually a very important function inside of the church. Wait, you mean the meet and greet, right? Yeah. I, I mean that time for, for, you know, Everybody to run to the bathroom real quick because announcements are going to be, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, or, or that time to, to shake hands and, to, and swap recipes with that person that you haven't seen in two weeks because they missed last Sunday. Or Is that really what the piece is about? Because it feels like that's what it's become. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the <laughs> lobby. Let's all go to the lobby and get ourselves a treat. The piece is here to, in fact, be that time where we are reconciled one to another. We have confessed our sins to God. It is time for us to let bygones be bygones and shake hands with our sisters and brothers and put it behind us. Well, and now it's shake hands, but originally it was an embrace. It was, according to Justin Martyr, who wrote about it in the fourth century, that this time... Uh, the community would share with each other the kiss of peace, which uh, in this time during COVID, post-COVID, whatever we're in, uh, seems rather icky. But it's it's meant to be this intimate time with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if you are holding a grudge against them, it's really hard to go up and give them a kiss. Well, and it's the same idea with, you know, with washing feet, that it's really hard to be mad at somebody who's washing your feet. Um, it's, it's impossible to throw stones when you're washing feet. Um, 
So this is this is really the time that sort of observes that ordinance that Jesus gives us to uh, that if you have a, a grievance with a sister or brother that you go to the altar, you leave your offering there, you go and you be reconciled and then you both come together and offer a sacrifice to God. It is the it is the remembering, literally the remembering of the community and remembering that we're all part one of each other. Um, and so we have the peace here. Uh, and it is a handy time to make announcements and it is a handy time to do prayers for birthdays and anniversaries and things like that. Um, but we need to remember that it is not the intermission. It is not a great time for everybody to catch your breath. Uh, it is meant to be a coming, a recoming back together of the people so that we can then move to the celebration of the Holy Communion, whether that be prayer A, B, C, or D, which are all elements that are not appearing in this week's episode of the BCP and me. Because it is all preparation for the celebration and sharing of Holy Communion. Well, and if we look at the top of page 361, the typeface and the rubrics that follow it tell us that this is a separate section, a separate part of a service. Because, in fact, looking at the rubric on page 359 above the confession of sin, the service can be concluded right after prayers of the people. Mm -hmm. Um, It can stop right there. Um, and page 406 gives some more details about how that happens. But as we move into the confession of sin, the absolution, and the peace, we are then preparing ourselves to move more fully into the celebration of the Holy Eucharist or the Holy Communion. And Father, this feels like a good time to end this episode and, and prepare ourselves for what comes next. But before we do that, I just want to say that so much of this episode may have felt like review. So much of this episode may have felt like, well, we've talked about this. We've talked about this. We've talked about this. We've talked about this. And all of this points to the grand overarching structure of the Book of Common Prayer, which is why it is a right and good and joyful thing to start at the beginning, which is a very good place to start. So by the time you get to the communion, all of this becomes a part of your DNA. You live this out. This is a part of the way that you worship. And so when you come to the Eucharist, it should feel familiar. It should feel like home. Yeah, because Um, we we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest all these words, all these pages, and all these prayers. So... Having reached the peace, and it seems like the peace is the right thing to do. So, Father Joshua, may the peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you.